One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox. This week, The Hedgehog and the Fox continue the series Conversations with Publishers. And not just one publisher, but six. Princeton University Press was founded in 1905 and is unusual among university presses in being an independent company rather than a university department. In summer 2017, it became the first American university press to open an office in China. And this year, its European office, located in Woodstock, a few miles north of Oxford, celebrates its 20th anniversary. So that seemed to offer a good opportunity for the Hedgehog and the Fox to visit Woodstock and talk to some Princeton staff members to find out about their experience of working for a university press that, as you'll hear, is thinking increasingly globally. First, Caroline Priday, who heads the European office and is also Global Promotions Director. Caroline's been with Princeton for 14 years. She joined after a stint with a book distributor in Singapore, following 15 years with Elsevier. I came back, was already living in Woodstock, and had the great good fortune to be sent information about a job promotions manager at Princeton. And I thought, oh, I could do that. And it's only three minutes walk from home. So here I am. Caroline may have the shortest journey to work, of anyone employed in academic publishing. My commute has got shorter since we moved to this office probably 10 years ago. Yes, I don't even have to cross the main road now, so I'm very, very spoiled. I asked Caroline what the original aims of the Woodstock office had been. It was set up really to expand the European author base for Princeton as part of their sort of remit to be a global publisher and also to expand the publicity for those authors that we had sort of in North America, because I mean, back in those days, there was much more of selling rights across the Atlantic and that sort of thing. And we would do books in North America and sell rights into Europe. And so it was really trying to sort of move away from that model and offer, you know, authors say that we could publish them globally. So that was really where we where we came to and what we started about and I came in I was came in as publicity manager and so my remit was really just to continue to expand the the European coverage. Back then I can remember publicising books was a very different activity from it is today. Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, very much then you sent books out to the book review pages. I mean, it was still that sort of traditional model and kind of hope that someone would pick them up. 
that has changed dramatically now. Um, the book review pages have declined and we are now much more looking for off-the-book page coverage. We'll send things to columnists and that sort of thing. And I'm also doing a lot more event coverage and there are so many more book festivals. So we're putting authors forward to, to those. So the author has to work a lot harder now than I think they did 20 years ago when we, when we started here. So what are the implications of that in terms of, well, author training, for want of a better term? We set up calls with the key trade authors at the beginning of every season. So we're very clear about what we want to do with them and, and what we expect from them. And we've even started sort of little mini video presentations with some authors where who, whose book may be less easy to grasp immediately. So we get them to give us their, their sort of elevator pitch, which is all very good training for them because you're absolutely right. A lot of academics are not necessarily used to... Um, their three minutes of fame and uh, getting their ideas across in that very short time. So that's something we really work with them on and we get them to do us talking points and all sorts of things like that, really to make sure that they can under, you know, get their arguments across in a, in a short time. We have had some who've given us a video presentation and 40 minutes later, we've, we're still on their elevator pitch. So you then get a sense of, OK, maybe they're not going to work for that. But then you can pitch them for in-conversation type events and things like that. So the publishing landscape has clearly changed in the past two decades. But what about the Princeton Europe operation itself? How has it evolved? We've got bigger... I mean, we've expanded the editorial team, so we really are commissioning across the sort of areas that we work on in, in, in the Princeton office. We've got the international rights team here, so that's made a huge difference. Our, our rights turnover has, you know, grown enormously. I'd say we've perhaps got more professional. I'll probably be <laughs> told off for saying that. But I mean, our catalogues have taken on a whole different look. I mean, when I joined, they were very sort of American University Press, black and white, that sort of thing. And they now, you know, colour and you, you really feel like you're going out with a, a, something to be to be proud of. So I think that has changed enormously. We feel much more global. I mean, we're, we're on um, Zoom conference calls with the US office all, all the time. We feel much, much more connected. I think when I first joined, you were doing all meetings on a phone. There was me and one other and we used to, it was quite strange doing meetings on the phone. So we used to keep a bottle of sherry, which we'd get out for doing meetings on the phone. But, you know, now um, that it just makes a huge difference. To, you just feel more connected. I think that makes a big difference. And, and that's one thing that's really changed since I've been here. Finally, I asked Caroline what she thought the parent company's expectations of the European office were. I think their expectations are, I mean, media, when I first joined, the very much the, the sort of publicity, that was that was a very strong thing. Getting the, the European publicity, that makes an enormous, they get very, really excited about that. And authors get really excited about seeing coverage outside of the UK and, and sort of all around around Europe. I think that's very important. And I think it's the bringing the sort of diversity of scholarship from different areas and and around Europe that I think is very much something that they want I mean I, I think Princeton very much has this idea of itself as a global publisher so it's it's really trying to get in um, scholarship out of you know from around Europe 
I think those are the things that are important to them. And I think also we are sometimes seen as a place of experimentation. There's lots of things that you can do in this office because we're small that we can then feed, we can sort of feed back into into the main office. So we're often quite pioneering um, with some of the ways that we're working and breaking down the sort of silos between teams. And we've often fed back ideas into the main office. So I think that's something that we can do quite well. Next, I spoke to Sarah Caro, who's Editorial Director for Social Sciences, commissioning books and managing a team of editors in both the UK and the US. Sarah has one of the best origin stories of how she got into the world of books. It was completely by accident, like most things in my life. (laughs) I'd been in the theatre. I was interested in political theatre in the 80s and um, was a writer and assistant director. And I needed to earn some money to pay for my wedding dress. So I got a job working at Waterstones in Charing Cross Road on the top floor, which was the academic floor, and loved that. And suddenly realised that there was this whole business where people had jobs involving books which I'd always loved which I'd known nothing about beforehand after that I was a bookseller and then I got fed up with being stuck in the same place so I saw the reps coming and going and that looked quite fun so I became a sales rep and then once I was in-house at Longman higher ed as was I suddenly realized there was this job called being an editor (laughs) and uh, it looked good to me so Sarah has commissioned psychology and sociology at Cambridge University Press and economics and finance at Oxford. She was also, for a time, a trade editor at Profile Books. I found it really exciting working in the trade world, working with agents, the whole kind of sense of self that one has as a trade publisher is kind of very exciting and you feel like you're on the cutting edge of things. I was surprised by what I missed about academic publishing. I missed the fact that I didn't have all of the international travel. I do a lot of travel. And I really enjoyed when I was an academic publisher going to other parts of Europe and to the US and visiting departments there and talking to people there. And I didn't have that with the trade publishing. I also, bizarre, and this will seem very odd to many people, I missed peer review. I missed that process of commissioning reviews and then engaging with the feedback and sharing that with the author and having it, I guess, almost as a security blanket. After that, Sarah was economics and management journals publisher at Wiley, but she still hankered after the world of books. I always knew that I wouldn't stay in journals publishing for long because I missed that engagement with ideas. And that's what I absolutely love about publishing, getting a proposal going to a conference session and hearing someone speak or just having a conversation over coffee and just hearing about some idea that you hadn't thought of or that you'd been sort of in the back of your mind, you'd been picking up related ideas. And that process of taking an idea and developing it and expanding it and turning it into a book and making it accessible and seeing how it fits in with the broader kind of intellectual and public discourse, I think is just absolutely thrilling and a great privilege to be able to spend your time doing it. I asked Sarah for an example of the kind of book she enjoys working on. I got a phone call from a guy called Simon May, who's a philosopher. So philosophy is technically not really part of my remit. He just said, oh, I've heard about you. And um, I've got this book on the concept of cute. And um, he started talking about it. And I'd never 
kind of thought about cute as a concept particularly and he started talking about it in terms of kind of cultural and political things and the idea of cute as almost um, a form of resistance to power and I just thought wow this is amazing this is really interesting and uh, we got talking and we talked a lot about how to shape it he'd already done he'd already got quite a detailed proposal and we kind of had lots of really interesting conversations and, you know, we published the book earlier this year. And that was an example of something which I hadn't kind of thought about specifically, but then as soon as it was mentioned to me, all sorts of other pathways kind of lit up and connections and I got really excited about it. So, broadening out from cute, how would Sarah characterise the sorts of books she's looking for? I'm interested in books which relate to everyday life. So one of the things I feel passionate about, I'm a huge advocate, obviously, for the kind of intellectual life and for academia. But I do feel that it's important that on some level it interacts, depends on the subject area, but in the social sciences, it has to interact with the real world. And I'm very keen on looking at the kind of policy implications. So often, I mean, I'm very keen on books which draw out the real world applications and implications of research. So actually another another example of, of a kind of completely serendipitous thing, uh, someone had kindly set up a, a launch event for Diane Coyles, who's a very brilliant author of ours, um, her book on GDP. And I was chatting to one of uh, the people who were there and he was telling me about some research that he was doing on the intangible economy. And I'd never heard the term the intangible economy because I'm quite ignorant. And I, so I said, oh, you know, what's that? That sounds interesting. And so he explained it to me. And we got talking and the proposal developed. And it eventually became a book called Capitalism Without Capital by Jonathan Haskell and Stephen Westlake, which has been our highest grossing book for like the last year or so and got an, ind- an endorsement from Bill Gates. And it was all, it's all been very exciting. But that was a, a case of a, of a book being commissioned because um, someone talked to me about something that I didn't know about, but I thought was really interesting and that other people would be interested to learn about. And they were. Now a global sales perspective from Andrew Brewer, Princeton's Director of International Sales. Andrew's been selling academic books in one way or another for 25 years and is currently based in the north of England. Like Sarah, he started out as a bookseller. I, you know, we're looking around for work and basically I ended up working in the National Gallery and, um, you know, ended up running the bookshop there at the point when we'd expanded it into a very large specialist art bookshop just before the internet arrived. And that was great. I was really enjoying it, but I just fancied a change in getting out of London and it coincided with a job which came up with the sales consortium. It was Northern UK sales representative. It was in the days where, you know, you basically had to put people on the road and, not, you know, go around, visit all the bookstores and actually have meetings and sell books and, you know, very old fashioned. The reason the consortium appeared, appealed to me was because I knew Princeton's and California's books from selling them. And it was the book selling that really got me into the kind of university press world of publishing. I guess I didn't really understand it at that point. I was young and inexperienced, but I understood that there were these publishers who always seemed to have really interesting books. They clearly were not slavishly following commercial trends. And there was also a, you know, a clear 
demand for these sorts of books among well-educated readers. I really enjoyed the challenge of trying to basically to show people in this country that these books have legs. As with publicity, so with sales, the landscape has changed. That's hardly a new observation on my part, I know, but I wanted to hear Andrew's views on the changes he's seen. It's changed very much, and um, because I now am international sales director, so that gives me an overview of all territories outside of North and South America. Okay, so first of all, it's extended the range, but the real shift, of course, is in the way that the business is done. You know, this is a common enough story, but you know, there are now relatively few individual bookshop accounts that you can have an ongoing selling relationship with. So that's within the UK, let's say. And so, so much is done centrally, so much is moved online and so on and so forth. So, but really what is of more relevance and interest to me at the moment is because I've got a lot of people on the ground who are doing a lot of the good legwork. So what I'm thinking about all the time is how to extend our reach and relevance internationally. My international sales director job with Princeton is relatively new in that, you know, I moved there a year ago. And it coincides, as I'm sure you've picked up with a lot of other, you know, new ideas and innovations within the press, a lot of energy, you know, but I have to say that international sales and international reach have always been at the heart of Princeton's endeavor and have particularly been so in the last five to 10 years. And so the the recent changes we've made are really part of a longer evolution. I also wanted to get Andrew's view of the Princeton list from a sales perspective. How does he characterize it? You know, for a long time, the heavy lifting was done by our economics list. First, the kind of textbook end. But then as we developed a popular economics list, that became really, really important in getting our foot in the door and enhancing the profile. And then uh, the the hard sciences, the sciences like uh, physics, astrophysics, mathematics, and then the popular science genre, which, you know, kicked off in the 90s and which we could also contribute to. Those two strands have been just getting stronger and stronger and stronger as time has gone on. And they've been responsible for some of our big, major hits. You know, when if you win the FT Business Book of the Year award with one of your books, you know that you're doing something right, you know, and it it really gets you on the map within the UK. When your authors uh, win the Nobel Prize for the subjects they're in, these things help, you know, with your credibility. But most importantly, for someone like me who's working in sales, they, they send out a signal about the, the commercial potential of what we're doing. So science and economics do some of the heavy lifting when it comes to taking the Princeton list round the world. But there's more to it than that. Then you've got lovely subjects. You know, history is always good. And in particular, also ancient history. So Greek and Roman history, that will sell all over the UK and Europe. It's a great, great subject for us. Art, of course, both contemporary and classical and overlapping with design and with architecture and more and more with critical theory and your sort of continental philosophy. That is a very, very rich publishing area. But um, philosophy in general is a good one too and then we might mix it up with the something like the ancient wisdom series so that's a good example of where these things come together ancient world philosophy some concept of how to how to package 
um, your your material in an appealing way. All of that thing, all of that comes together. Andrew also cited natural history as a strong category. The Field Guide to Britain's Birds has sold over 24,000 copies. But we're heading back to the Ancient Wisdom series in a moment, because our next guest, Rob Tempio, is its editor. He's based in Princeton, but has spent the past year in Oxford, which is where I spoke to him, a stone's throw from the Bodleian Library. He started by telling me how he got into publishing. Like so many, I started in academia. I had been a grad student in philosophy with the idea of pursuing a PhD, and I quickly learned I would rather give people the ideas than um, put them into action myself. So I managed to get a job working at Oxford University Press just after I decided that I didn't want to continue with graduate school. And I worked at Oxford University Press for several years, making my way up from editorial assistant to assistant editor got a job at another press working as an editor, and then in 2006 I landed at Princeton, where I've been ever since. I asked Rob about his remit at Princeton. When I came to Princeton, I hadn't worked on philosophy books before, but again, my background was in philosophy. And I had done ancient philosophy, so I was interested in that. Um, the ancient world was, was new to me. And, you know, good editors are good generalists, I think, and um, dilettantes in the best sense of the word people had said to me at the time, they said, you must be excited about getting back to philosophy. But I was actually more excited about the ancient world because it was an area I could learn about. And that's proven to be the case. It's, it's the one where I could come at it as a sort of novice and suggest to people ideas for books that I would want to read. And I think that's proven fruitful. Does it really make a difference being able to see people face to face, as opposed to communicating largely through email? I first came to Oxford about 12 years ago to meet with people. And that paid dividends even then, just meeting them. And these are people I haven't seen in 12 years and reconnecting with them. It's as if we're old friends in some ways. These, some of these are people I have corresponded with and giving them the chance to put a face and a personality with uh, the emails has been, has been wonderful. And as promised, back to ancient wisdom. Rob told me about the aims of his series. These are books that take a classical text, a short classical text, or an excerpt from a short classical text. They're newly translated by a scholar. They're translated to be accessible for a contemporary audience. They write a short introduction, they lightly annotate them, and we package them as how-to books. We package them as books that take the best of classical texts and make them accessible to a modern reader for the sake of gaining some sort of wisdom on a topic. They're fun, they're serious, um, they are done often by the best scholars, but they are intended to be a kind of gateway to the classics for the general reader. And we've done books from the first one, which was How to Win an Election, which was a very fun book that was a, a kind of ancient um, electioneering pamphlet that advised Cicero on how to win his election to Consul of Rome in 64 BC and was filled with fun tidbits about digging up dirt on your digging up dirt on your opponents. And then we followed that up with how to run a country, but then we've also done how to die, how to grow old, how to think about war, how to keep your cool, an ancient guide to anger management. And they've really taken off. There's been a lot of interest in them as volumes from general readers. So um, uh, it's been an exciting series and it continues to grow. And, and uh, it was immensely gratifying to arrive here in the UK and to see them well represented in our bookstores. So.
My penultimate guest is Christy Henry, who's been director of Princeton University Press since 2017. Previously, she spent over two decades at the University of Chicago Press, where she was editorial director for the sciences, social sciences and reference. So I was curious to know what it's been like experiencing PUP from the inside rather than the outside these past two years. One of the the really appealing aspects of Princeton is that it is an independent press closely affiliated with a world-renowned university. And so I thought it would be an interesting shift to go from being a reporting department of a university, which is the way Chicago is structured, to this kind of environment where you've got a great partnership but independence. I hadn't realized just how meaningful that distinction is. And one of the most tangible examples for me is that we are able here to do things like create new positions or reorganize teams to perhaps better reflect the dynamics of the publishing industry now without having to always map and align those on the university structure. We can make decisions that are we feel are best as a publisher without having to ensure that alignment. And that has been much more meaningful in these first two years than I realized it would. So that's a great discovery. I had, like many people do, the impression that Princeton was at the top of publishing knowledge and evolution in everything, which could have made this a less interesting job because then what's a director to come in to do, right? If everything's humming along, I'm pleasantly surprised that there was some, there were opportunities for change and ongoing growth. And I would have wrapped most of that around or what I would say modernization. So another aspect of being independent is that it's then incumbent upon the press to come up with its own best practices because it's not always driven along by the growth or change of a university. So in areas like equity and inclusion, for example, that's something that we've had to create internally and something that really appeals to me and that hadn't been accomplished in a, in a cross-organizational way here. So pleasant discoveries, which I've seen as opportunities. Christy studied environmental science as an undergraduate, so it's perhaps unsurprising that she compares the world of university press publishing to an ecosystem. One thing we know from ecosystem studies is that the greater the diversity, the more resilient those systems seem to be. And I think that is one of the particular strengths of the university press ecosystem. We both have a, a, we have a great diversity of types of publishers from small publishers that publish a handful of books a year to group four publishers that of course publish hundreds of books a year. And then Oxford and Cambridge as kind of these apex species, if you would, in the, in the ecosystem. So we are, we can adapt to the different needs and we each find our niche in many ways. Yes, we occasionally compete for books, but I think each of us is serving the ecosystem in a, in a really beneficial way because we've got so many varieties of forms. Within many of our own publications programs, we also have great diversities of models of publishing and of of business. So journals, distribution, and then within the book lists, the lists like Princeton, what, what compels me so much is that it is it has titles in humanities, social sciences, sciences, contributing in significant ways, but it also is reaching general readers through our trade program, textbooks shaping the way the pedagogy is steering, and monographs, which are really 
kind of field defining, knowledge codifying. And I think therefore, as the economic climate shifts, and we're facing that all the time, when one part of our business faces acute challenges in a particular year, we can approach that volatility, I think, with greater confidence because of the diversity of form and the diversity of revenue streams. So that's a great plus to me. I mean, fundamentally, we're also guided by a mission. So we can still be making decisions that are about animating conversations, informing knowledge. And now more than ever, I've heard us referred to as the new world free press. And it's, it's an incredibly empowering, also a bit worrisome given what it says about the, the press itself. But we, our commitment to peer review and to the integrity of knowledge, I think has become ever more acute and something that positively reinforces our existence in many ways. We need to be better about communicating that as as a community um, and not doing so within the echo chamber of ourselves. It's incumbent upon us to signal how we differ uh, and what we're doing to protect the integrity of knowledge in a meaningful way. So I suggested that argues for a view of the university press publisher as an active participant in creating the intellectual climate rather than merely a conduit for the output of the academy. Yeah, I see us as an active agent, really. I mean, I think that that's where, by putting a book in our catalogue, we are making a statement about the kind of work that is resonant with the Academy. By supporting underrepresented authors through giving them more information about publishing or giving more resources toward their books, we can make a change that then might flow through to the university environment in a different way by challenging the focus on elite institutions and broadening our author demographics that can also bring change to the university ecosystem. I think there is a lot that we can do uh, a lot that we are doing. This is not new. This is what university presses have been, have been working towards since our origins as printers. Every one of us has worked hard to distinguish ourselves as publishers and not service industries of our universities. My final guest in this programme is Kim Williams. Kim began as an assistant editor, then moved into rights, spending several years as Princeton's international rights director. Last year, she became the digital and audio director and is steering the press into a new era of innovation, where soon a quarter of their front list will be available as audiobooks. She told me how this came about. The way the role evolved, actually, was I I had been doing translation for a long time. I had a wonderful team working with me, and we took responsibility for, um, on top of translation rights, we took responsibility for English language rights, which included audio. Uh, And we'd been doing it, we had a very successful audio licensing program and some wonderful partners out there in the world who made the audio books for us. But as I began to look at figuring out the industry trends and the report, there's a great deal of reporting about audio, of course, because it's been in double-digit growth for five years and the industry loves growth. So I'd been looking into that and wondering if there was more that we could do uh, and had the opportunity to talk to our um, uh, senior team and to, to begin to sense that there was some interest there in exploring that more thoroughly. So uh, we put together a, a a plan and a proposal and uh, decided that we'd move into publishing our own audio editions. And as we looked at that and looked at the fit for that, uh, we figured out that there there was a kind of a natural fit with our digital publishing. My predecessor had retired and we were looking at where we strategically where we could take our digital publishing over the next few years. So 
I have a kind of very uh, established, mature empire in in the digital publishing and an emerging growth sector in audio, and they're both a, a privilege to work on. Uh, so really, that's how it came about. We, you know, we need, there was an opportunity, and, and and we looked at that and took it. At the time, we hadn't published any of our own audio, with the exception of an experiment in two thousand and nine. So we uh, we looked for a partner, looked at how we might do it, and um, last October we published our first audio edition on the future by Martin Rees, and um, we've published another twenty or so audio books since then, and uh, it's a wonderful sector to work in. So how do Kim and her colleagues decide which titles are going to become audiobooks? There are many factors, there are many, many factors, but um, one of the things I will be looking at is uh, how big a book do we think this is for um, for readership? Is it is it niche and is it for a specific subject or is it does it have more of a general interest level? So tone, I think, is an important one. And then when looking closely at the manuscript, can can I hear it when I'm looking at the page? And sometimes that there's a there's a perfect fit there and sometimes there's just something that doesn't quite work. And again, this is something where having that conversation, having the opportunity of our own audio imprint means that uh, our editors can talk to authors as they're drafting to make this work, to make the flow work. And, and actually, you know, many of our authors do this very naturally any, anyway because they're very, very experienced communicators. There are other more technical things about uh, length, about whether there are figures and tables and charts in there and how difficult it might be to communicate that information verbally and we like to try and, and, and take a broad look across the, the variety of our lists so make sure we have plenty in science and plenty in the arts and humanities and plenty in social sciences as well. Once selected, titles need to be matched with readers. That's something I do in conversation. I have a wonderful uh, audio advisory group at the press uh, with colleagues from different teams. So we begin to have conversations there. Um, I also have an incredible partnership with uh, Sound Understanding, our studio partners, and uh, they will begin to advise who they've worked with and who they know. They particularly work with um, journalists or who have a kind of academic interest in that area so uh, we try to pick people who will really really understand what they're reading and you can always hear I think if people are reading or if they're engaging the level of sales we expect to achieve does have an impact on whether we think we're delivering a narrator who is a wonderful and experienced narrator or whether we're looking for someone who has their own kind of uh, marketing hook for the book, whether their name is a draw and we're experimenting with, with what works for our kind of book. We will sometimes put, for example, a female narrator on a male book. We will have a look at what the fit is. We did a wonderful project um with uh, Michael Rosen's book Workers' Tales where we had seven different narrators to read approximately 40 short stories so that every time we switched story there was a new voice and a fresh voice on there. I look at who I listen to when I'm listening to audio editions and what recommendations we might have and, and how much we think we can earn back in terms of sale. Lastly, I asked Kim what she's currently excited about. I'm really excited that we have our own in-house publishing um, division, but we're also increasing the volume of books we're licensing with um, audio partners. So we should be seeing an increase in the number of books made in audio, which I think is wonderful for our authors, whether we make that in-house or whether we license it out to someone else. So we should be seeing well over 60 books a year published in audio. We publish 240 books a year, so that's a quarter of the whole list. And some books just don't quite work in the format as well so you know I think just exploring what the industry looks like for non-fiction I think 
Nonfiction is very robust as a sector of the industry, but in terms of academic publishing, I think it's very untapped. And I'm hearing more and more from counterparts and publishing um, friends and partners around the world that they're exploring that and they're thinking about that too. So being part of the conversation and part of that moment is very exciting for me. Kim Williams, Princeton's Director of Digital and Audio Publishing. My thanks to her and to everyone who took part in this programme to mark Princeton Europe's 20th birthday. Over the next few months, I'll be releasing longer versions of all these interviews. Meanwhile, you can find out more about all aspects of PUP's output on their website. That's all for now, but I'll be back with another programme soon. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.